That was a sweet time to be able to see her baptized as well, to see a life that was transformed and changed, and how precious it was just to hear her story. And it's a story that probably many of us have heard in, in other situations, but regardless, to know that the Lord is still working and moving in people's lives and transforming hearts, and to see her now come to know the Lord and to be baptized. It was a, a wonderful visual testimony of what the Lord is doing in the lives of our people. And so I'm sorry you missed that part of it, but I'm so glad you got to hear this part. Uh, we are continuing to look around, if you'd like, and see what we're doing with the place. It's pretty nice, isn't it? <clears throat> if you look up, you've got a little bit more headroom. Uh, <clears throat> custom wallpaper. Uh, but anyway, we are in the process now of redoing the worship center, and it's going to be nice. Probably around the 1st of December, <clears throat> we'll have it complete, and so... Each week as you come, we'll see a little bit more change taking place, and hopefully we'll see it becoming more and more completed in time as well. We are still making our way through the book of Matthew, and we're going to be in the 22nd chapter. So if you have your Bible and want to turn to Matthew 22, uh, I'd appreciate you doing that. We'll be able to follow along. But while you're doing this, uh, let me just say that um, love is very, very important. We all enjoy being loved and to love someone else, and it is vitally important. It's something that I know when uh, Jane and I were first married, uh, even till today, as a matter of fact, I continue to look at her and say, Jan, tell me that you love me. Just tell me that you love me. Lie if you have to. I mean, just tell me that you love me. You know, we like to hear that. There's just something about someone expressing their love for you that is so important and is such a blessing. But yet we in turn need to express that love to others as well. And so we're going to be talking about that topic of love this morning in the 22nd chapter of Matthew. But uh, in order to kind of set the scene, let me let you know that we are in the last week of Jesus's earthly life. He's already entered into Jerusalem and very, very shortly in the next day or two, he will be crucified. And so he's in this last little part of his earthly ministry, and as a result of that, it's a tense time for him. As you know, when we, we talked about the um, triumphal entry, when he enters in with all the, the hosannas being said and, and called to him at that time, and, and yet just in the next day or two, it's going to be down to crucify him. So a lot takes place during this week, and this happens to be in the middle of the week that this event takes place. <clears throat> Excuse me. But please know that uh, as Jesus is entering in this last week of his life, he is all, all of a sudden in a contentious relationship with the, the leaders of the church, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the, the, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. He's, he's running into them now more and more, and they're very upset because as Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, they've already heard the stories. They've, they've had encounters with him repeatedly, but now they're... The, uh, the, the, the conflict is even becoming more and more intense because they see the crowds that have flocked to Jesus. He's teaching things that they were not able to teach, and his popularity is growing, and they feel threatened as a result of that. And so every time you see them encountering, they're challenging Jesus. They're trying to, to trip him up. The Bible talks about them trying to trap him, and they're always trying to do something to cause friction, something to where they can then put him to death. Really, at this point, they're already looking and anticipating a time when they can put him to death. And so these are encounters that Jesus is having with these, these uh, chief leaders and, and all of the church at that time. 
But I wanted to just back up one chapter before we get into this, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about there. In the 21st chapter, uh, in the 23rd verse, it says this, When he entered into the temple complex, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you that authority? Of course, what they're referring back to is Jesus entering into the Temple Mount, and as he does, he sees all the money changers that are taking place there and cheating the people. He sees the selling faulty sacrificial animals at a high price, and, and Jesus comes in, and if you recall that, he just overturns the tables, and he, he throws them out because he said, my house is a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves, and, and so he's come into this time. It's the time of Passover, and so you literally have throngs of people that are there at this time and yet Jesus does this and confronts them and so they come back to him and they say by what authority are you doing these things it's kind of an attitude of who do you think you are God y'all will get this in a minute <clears throat> but that's the attitude that's what he is dealing with these uh, chief leaders that are are looking to him and, and with just such hatred, and they're wanting to, to do him in. As a matter of fact, if you go on into the 21st, uh, excuse me, the 22nd chapter, beginning in verse um, 17, the Pharisees again are trying to trip him up during this time. And it says in verse 17, Tell us, therefore, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so what Jesus' response to them is, he, receives, he perceives what they're thinking, and he says, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? They're trying to drive a wedge between Rome and, and, and Jesus. And so they're trying to test him. They're trying to trip him up and cause conflict there. But Jesus looks at him and says, You're a hypocrite. You don't really ask that question because you're wanting to answer. What you're trying to do is bring division. And then finally in verse 23, it says, The same day, some of the Sadducees, uh, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brothers. Now, I'll not continue reading it, but just what it ends up saying is a man had six brothers. He marries. He does not have children. And as a result, the, he dies. The, the wife goes to the next brother. Well, sure enough, dies without children. And it just passes right on along. Keeping in mind the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection anyway, but yet they're posing a, a, a question about the resurrection, a far-fetched question about the resurrection, because at the end they say when the resurrection comes, who is she married to? Because she's been married to all seven of these brothers. It's a concocted story. But in verse 29, Jesus answered them, You are deceived. Because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, Jesus is fighting that thought again. He's trying to deal with this attitude that's trying to undo him. And so this is the, the relationship that he has with these leaders. Well, now as we come to this, the, the thought today and the event that takes place today, the Pharisees gather back around again. They have one last effort that they're wanting to make towards Jesus. And so look with me beginning in verse 34. It says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together in that place, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to
to test him. See, it's the same situation that's there that came to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Which commandment in the law is the greatest? You see that that's a loaded question, and he's trying to test him again because at this time, there are 613 commandments in the law. Now, not all of those, all of those came from Moses. The religious leaders continued to add to the commands and the laws, trying to clarify, trying to add to, trying to build more into it. And that's why it talks about the, the law at that time being such a burden on, on the, the Jews because they had so many of these laws to have to watch and try to incorporate into their life. And as a result, 248 of those laws were, from a positive perspective, uh, I call them the thou shalts, but then you also have 365 of those that were from a negative perspective, perspective thou shalt not. But you have 613 of these commands in the law. And so here's this expert in the law that looks to Jesus and says, tell me which one is the greatest. If you had to boil it all down to one law, what would it be? The very fact that he asked this question probably presumes that there's great contention between even the religious leaders themselves. Do the laws about sacrifice outrank those about the blessings? Which are the most important of the laws? Well, it's kind of interesting because Jesus here does not look at him and say, you hypocrite, why are you trying to tempt me or test me? Instead, Jesus looks at this and approaches it completely different than what he does all the other times. Because look what he says in verse 37. He doesn't beat around the bush. He goes directly to it. And he says, he said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. You see, Jesus saw this as a teachable moment. This is an opportunity to, to do away with all the burden of all these other laws. Instead, he says, here is the greatest commandment. And he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now, what he's doing is he's going back to Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, verses four and five, and he's presenting the Shema. And what that is, that is a very important passage of scripture for the Jews at that time. Because what it said is exactly what Jesus quoted. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. He's boiling all the, the commandments down to this one. And he does so with a reason and a purpose. Because it starts out by saying, love the Lord your God. Well, now, in English, we have the term love that covers a host of different interpretations and meanings. Greek, not so much. He's talking about love, but not a love of a friendship love. It's not even a romantic type of love. When he uses the term love here, it's that term that we've heard perhaps many times, agape. It's from that term agape. And what that means is a, it's a love of the will, the love of a choice. It's getting down to where we have a purpose and a meaning for this love. It's more than just friendship. It's more than just romantic love. And what it is, it's a, a decision to place this person above any and all others. And that's why he says, love the Lord your God. What he's doing is he's taking the relationship that a person should have with God. And the greatest commandment is he holds him up high. He is above all others. The love that a person is to have for God is to be greater than love for anything else. And so as he says, love 
the Lord your God. He's talking about a position of priority that God is supposed to have in, in a person's life. He said, that's the command, that you love God intentionally, willingly. You choose to make him one, first place. And so that's what he says when he says, love the Lord your God. Now, it's kind of interesting as you, you continue to read that and you see what he says. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Sometimes we group those together, and, and I've been guilty of it too, to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But when you study the passage, there's a reason for it to say all. That term all is an important term. It's kind of fun because, uh, you know, I know Paul is always quoting our pastor, you know, Greek or Hebrew, and, and so I'm going to do that too. Because I looked and I studied that word that's translated all there. And in the Greek, do you know what that, that word actually means? It means all. It means total, complete. Some of your trans translations may say whole heart, whole soul, and your whole mind. It's talking about all, and that's why I think he separates it out each time. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Not part of it, not a percentage, not a section of it, but instead all of your heart. And that all of your soul, not just parts of it, all of your mind needs to be focused on who the Lord is and giving him honor in that position of, of, of great grace and love. And so he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, your heart, when you start considering what that actually means, the heart is the very center part of a person. It's their core, if you will. Uh, you know, when you talk about getting to the heart of the matter, in other words, what it really means, the real purpose and the focus. And so he says, love God with all of your heart, all of your core, your innermost person. He says, love with all of that. And then he goes on to say, love with all of your soul. And your soul is your actual essence, the the personality, and he says, so when you love God with all of your soul, he's talking about all of your life needs to be an example, example of God's love and your appreciation toward him. And then all of your mind is the intellect. It is, it is the attitude that a person has. And so when he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, from your core, all of your soul, your most basic life, your essence, and then from all of your mind, your intellect, your attitude. And so do you see why this is the greatest commandment? And it's a commandment that was given that they already knew because in the Shema, you had to say that, recite it three times a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, and once before bed. And so this is a common verse and passage that they were well acquainted with. And so Jesus quickly pulls that out and said, here is the greatest commandment, love the Lord. Choose to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So he's elevating that. He says, you can do away with 612 others. This is the one that is so important. Isn't it nice to know if we had to, to uh, dissolve everything that's around Scripture that we can say, this is what's important. This is what's in, that we need to hold on to. And that's what he's done when he says, love the Lord your God. He doesn't end there, as you see. Uh, he gives him a little addendum. Uh, a little added verse in there because it says, love, uh, verse 39 says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. 
Same word for love. It's that choosing to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, this kind of love is not a natural love. It's not love that just anybody and everybody could have. It's a supernatural love because it's love that God gives as a person has a relationship and comes into a, a, a relationship with him that that love becomes part of that relationship. And so he says, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving one another. It's very, very interesting when you think of that. He's, he's quoting Leviticus 19 where he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But it's, it's, it's interesting because this love, whether it's the love for God that comes from our core or whether it's our love for our neighbor that, that also is something that is supernatural, um, it has to come from the inside. It's not something that we do on the outside. Keep in mind who he's talking to here. He's talking to a legal expert. He's got the Pharisees that are all around. And as he's talking with them, they are the religious leaders, those that the people looked up to as being righteous, as being holy. And so as a result, he's surrounded by these people as he says this. But he also wants them to understand what he's really communicating. And he says, this has to come from inside. It's not the outside. Let me read a, a, a passage of scripture. This is from the Gospel of John. It's the 15th um, chapter, beginning in verse 12. It says, this is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So he's talking about the way that we should love one another. He said, it's a great command. As you have loved me, so you follow my command and love others. That's why it's a love of the will. It's a love of choice that we have to do. Later on in a letter to the, from 1 John, uh, the same apostle writes this in 1 John, the fourth chapter, and he says, beginning in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Did you get that? The apostle John is trying to draw the distinction there. He says, you have those that say that they love God, but yet they hate their brother. And he says, those people are a liar. He says, for the person who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother. You see, that's the type of love. It's, it's a love for God and a love for our brother. He's capsulizing these two great commandments right there again, reiterating the importance of them, love for God and love for man. Because, see, these Pharisees appeared on the outside very righteous, very holy. You'd probably step back and look at them and say, that's who I want to emulate. That's the person that really knows what's going on. They're the ones that uh, understand the law. And so we would hold them up as, as people to model our spiritual lives after. But not so Jesus. That's why he's getting to this point. Uh, we're not going to spend time looking at the 23rd chapter uh, right now, but I do want to pick out one little piece of it because he's talking to the Pharisees. Take some time. Read the entire 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. You'll find that Jesus gets right down to the nitty-gritty 
in talking with these so-called religious leaders. But look with me, beginning in verse 27. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones and every impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what Jesus is trying to deal with here. He's asked by this law expert, what's the greatest law? And he says, this is what it is. But he says, those that are Pharisees, those that are the religious leaders, those that you look up to as being the, 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 the righteous ones and the holy ones, he says, they are not because what they're trying to do is appear that way on the outside. But there's a void on the inside. That's why they had such great jealousy for Jesus. That's why they hated him. That's why they wanted to put him to death is because he was concerned about their inside. He knew their thoughts. He knew their hearts. And he was responding that way. It's not what we do on the outside that's important. It's what's on the inside. That's why Jesus responded. The greatest commandment was loving God with your core, your heart. It's loving God with your soul, your very life, your essence. It's loving God with all of your intellect and your mind. All of that's coming from within. Why can we, why could Jesus, and why can we say that this is the greatest commandment? Because once this comes from within, it affects all parts of our life. In fact, what Jesus goes on to say in verse 40 of the passage we're looking at here in the 22nd chapter, he says, all the law and all the prophets depend on these two commandments. Because you see, they start from the inside and they come out. Far too often, we're even guilty here in the church of practicing our righteousness before men. And Jesus warns us not to do that. He says, don't practice your righteousness before men to be seen by men for have, and have them think that you're something special. He says, no, no, don't do that. The greatest command is to love God from the inside with all that you are. And it will, will overflow to where it will affect your relationship with not only God, but also with your fellow man. That's the kind of love he's striving for. That's what he's trying to teach us to do. And that's what he's moving in that direction. A passage of scripture that I'm sure most all of you know that we, we use oftentimes in weddings. It's from the love chapter. That's 1 Corinthians 13. You're probably very familiar with that. There's a section of it that's read at most all weddings, it seems like, and it's a precious, precious passage of Scripture, and it means so much at that time. But I'm not going to quote that part or read that part. I'm going to read this little section before that because I think it falls right into what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about these two great commands. It's not the outward man that he's concerned about. It's the inward man. And as a result of that, 1 Corinthians 13, let me begin reading in verse 1. It says, If I speak with the languages of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. In other words, I'm just making a bunch of noise. There's no meaning to it. There's no purpose in it. There's no reason for it. Even though I'm speaking this great language, it means nothing if there's no love. He goes on in verse 2, And if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so that I can, can move the mountains, 
but do not have love, I am nothing. Even if I know the mysteries and the prophecies, if I appear on the outside that I'm aware of all that's going on and the meanings to it, but if there's no love in that, I'm nothing. He says in verse 3, and if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned, but do not have love, I am nothing. I am nothing. The purpose for this love comes from within. It's not according to our actions. Have you ever been in the service, whether it's this church, another church, somewhere else, that, and I'm, I'm, I'm sharing a bias here, okay? And I apologize for that, except to simply say, I'm just not there yet. Uh, but it's, it's amazing how, even, we just sang the song, uh, Waiting There for You, an amazing song. I love that song. I worship to that song, and I hope you do too, and I hope you did. But remember, he's talking about these people that outwardly try to show themselves as being righteous and holy. Now, I am not saying, don't you leave this place and quote me as saying, I'm against raising your hands in worship, because I am not against that. Nor am I to, to look towards the heaven as we worship. I think that's awesome, as long as it's coming from the heart. I hope you're following my purpose. It's so easy to, to get caught up in the externals of worship. And Jesus says, I don't care about those things. Read the 23rd chapter. He talks about these that are the religious leaders, those that are the spiritual elites. And he says, you're nothing but whitewashed tombs. Yeah, you look great on the outside, but there's nothing but dead men's bones within you. I think what's so vitally important is he concern, is concerned about your heart, your soul, your mind, your relationship to others. And as a result of that, he says, that's what's so vitally important. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands. There's nothing wrong with looking to the heavens as we pray, as long as that's a reaction from what goes on in the heart. That's what's vitally important. Well, Matthew kind of ends the story right there, but Mark extends it just a little bit. So if you have the Bible and want to turn over to Mark, the 12th chapter, I want to show you what takes place after this event, or should I say not after the event, but actually the tail end of this event, because it's recorded in Matthew and Mark. But Mark has spent a little time filling in the rest of the story. Same situation, but beginning in verse 32, after this law expert, here's Jesus' expression of the greatest command is to love the Lord and then also to love our neighbor. This person, this scribe, it says in verse 32, then the scribe said to him, you are right. You're right. You have correctly said that he is the one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see what he's saying? He used all every time. He's repeating what Jesus said. It's kind of like the light bulb is going off. And he says, you answered correctly. He went into this trying to test and to trick 
Jesus, but instead he sees you're right. I agree with what you're saying and I see the importance of it. And so that's why he says, I understand. And then if you look at what he says, he says, it is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. More important than all the burnt offering and sac more than all the outward display. He says, I see that that inward heart is what makes the difference. And so that's what he says. Don't want you to miss this. Jesus is observing him and he sees what he says. And as a result of that, he says in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I have two ideas. One of them is timing. Keep in mind what he's talking about here. He's saying that this is the last week of my earthly life, and in just a matter of a couple of days, I'm going to be hanging from a cross, shedding my blood for a purpose. I'm expressing my love, laying down my life for my friends, as he's already talked about. He says, I'm expending my life for your purpose, to usher into the, son of, to the, the kingdom of God. That's where my kingdom is. And as a result of that, that's what he's saying, perhaps, is you're not far from the kingdom of God. Just hang on a couple of days, and you're going to see what we're talking about there. You'll see a visual testimony of what it means to shed your blood and give your life for your neighbor, your friend. Greater love hath no man than that. So that could be one possibility, but may I share another? I don't know what their policy was for social distancing back then. I kind of hear what it is for us today. But keep in mind, this expert in the law has just had an awakening to a degree to say, I get it. And Jesus is looking him eyeball to eyeball and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because you see, that guy is talking with the Messiah. He's talking with the Son of God even now. And we know that there's no way to the Father except through the Son. And what's about to take place, he said, you're so close. You're so close. There's a lot of us perhaps in this room that are so close. We've been around it all our lives. We know the stories, we know the, the rituals, we know the traditions, we know how we're supposed to act, we know the things we're supposed to say and the, the places we're supposed to go and the things we're supposed to do. Those are all outward things. Sometimes we call it the social gospel. Remember, even in 1 Corinthians, he said, if you feed the poor, well, that, we need to feed the poor. We're supposed to feed the poor. It's biblical to feed the poor, but that doesn't save us. He says, what saves us is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says, you're so close. You get it. Love God from your, all of your heart, soul, and mind. To love your neighbor as yourself. But what you still lack is a relationship with Jesus Christ because he's there to tempt him. He's there to test him. He's there to, to stump him. And he says, you're so close. We don't want to be close and miss. We would never want to do that. That's why it's so vitally important that this morning, this time, while we're here together, that we understand what's really important is not all the outward trimmings and the looks. What's important is a relationship 
with God the Father. Not just any relationship. It's not a love of, of just any kind of love, but it's a total intentional choice that we make to love him with all of our being, not just a part. He's not just a section of our life. He's a jealous God. He wants all of us. And that's what we need to do in order to establish that relationship is to give him all of us. We submit ourselves to him. Say, Lord, we cannot do this without you. That's when we find that he is willing to do it and has done it, just like he did just a couple of days later after this event that took place. We've got a lot to be thankful for and much to, to proclaim as believers. They need to see and know that we are Christians by our love. That's what it's about this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful that you had an encounter with this law expert and that he finally asked a legitimate question. Even though his intent was wrong, Lord, you saw it as a teachable moment that you had an opportunity to speak life into what was going on because not only were the other Pharisees and Sadducees there gathered around, but so were your disciples. And Lord, as this law expert found himself agreeing with what's going on, he was still missing one thing, and that is a relationship with you. Father, let us not miss that. I pray, Lord, that each of us in this room or anybody that's at home watching by live stream, Lord, that they would have a sensitivity in their heart to know that we have to have a personal relationship with you. We have to give you all of us, all of our heart, soul, all of our mind. And as we do so, Lord, that you will bless. We praise you. We acknowledge you. We worship you. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do ourselves. In this room, as we're gathered together and even offering up this prayer, Lord, I pray that decisions are being made. I pray that those that know you that have just gotten caught up in life find themselves drifting, find the joy of living for you and victory that we have in you kind of waning. Lord, would you help them to see that we have to live in love with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. We have to love each other as ourselves because that's the command that you've given us. So when we fail that command, forgive us, Lord, and restore us and renew us. And maybe there's someone in this room or at home that's watching that, that Lord, they don't even know what kind of love we're talking about because it's your love. And they say, we would like to have that kind of love. Well, Father, I pray that you just open their heart. Your Holy Spirit will draw them and they will submit themselves fully and completely to you. We pray that and we claim that today. And we do so in your precious name. So bless this time, each person that's here. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.